Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, continuing our series, The Ten Commandments, we're going to turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, and Deuteronomy 5, verse 7, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, No Other Gods. The world we live in is filled with choices. From the toothpaste that you buy to the clothing you wear, the car you drive to the food you eat, you have a multitude of choices no other generation could have even dreamt about. And furthermore, the culture in which we live is filled with diversity, a diversity of lifestyles, of cultures, of religions, and of worldviews. And many of us have come to love it that way. We can have Mexican food one night, Indian food the next, and Chinese food the day after. But when it comes to the law of God, the first law which speaks of God will have you celebrate no diversity at all. Exodus 3 verse 1, the first of the Ten Commandments, simply says, You shall have no other gods before me. And Deuteronomy 5 7, which is Moses recounting the law at the end of his life, says exactly the same thing. You shall have no other gods before me no diversity in worship. Now, before we move on to discover how this law works its way through the Bible and how it applies to our lives today, let's understand it. What is meant by the words, before me? Now, that's a Hebrew expression. It means, you shall have no other gods in my presence. Now, of course, everything depends on what we think is meant by God's presence. I mean, does it mean you should have no other God when you appear before him in worship, as in, Make sure you don't bring an idol into the tabernacle of the Lord when you come to worship. That is, don't even have a small idol in your jacket pocket. Now, I suppose everything depends on what it means when the God of Israel speaks about being in his presence. And the other issue is found in the statement, other gods. Are there other gods? Is Baal a real god? Or how about Chemosh of the Moabites and so forth? Is the first commandment just a call to exclusive allegiance, or is there more here in this command? And so it seems clear that in order to understand this command, we need to understand what it means to be in God's presence and what the God of Israel actually thinks about the many deities that surrounded the nation. So let's begin with what God says first about himself and then second about all the gods and goddesses of the nations around them. See, I think the best place to begin is with the creation account. The very first words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know, several things should interest us about that verse. You know, first, the Hebrew word for create is the word bara. In the Old Testament, it's only ever used in relationship to God. God alone is the creator. No one else created. So whatever exists was brought into being by God. It's not that the moon was brought into existence by one deity and the rivers by another and the mountains by another. It's not that Baal is the god of the storm. No, no. The storm is the creation of God. All that exists, therefore, is his. He owns everything and he created everything. Okay. The beginning of the Bible says that God has no rivals. He created everything. The next scripture to be considered are the first 15 chapters of Exodus. Now, you have to remember that when Israel first heard the Ten Commandments, the memory of the Exodus was still very fresh in their minds. It had happened just a few months ago. But for our purposes, let's refresh ourselves. 
God has met with Moses and has told him to go to Egypt and to demand that Pharaoh be obligated to let the people go. And then what follows next is a series of 10 plagues. Now, the modern reader might be tempted to read that only through our own cultural glasses. And and so we tend to see, for instance, the first plague, that is the turning of the water into blood, as a plague that all agriculture in Egypt, that is their food supply, was spoiled. I mean, after all, agriculture depended in Egypt entirely on the Nile. But in the Egyptian way of thinking, the Nile was controlled by the god Hapi, whom the Egyptians thought of as the god of the Nile. And so when Moses' god turned the Nile to blood, Hapi could not defend his own Nile against the god of the Hebrews. And the second plague is the plague of the frogs, frogs that come out of the Nile and fill all of Egypt. Again, the Egyptians had a goddess, Heket. She was the goddess of fertility, and yet, wherever we see her depicted, we see her with the head of a frog. Again, this now is Israel's God directing the frogs, not at the behest of Hecate. She she is left powerless. Well, we go through all 10 of the plagues that way. In each instance, we see the decimation of Egypt's confidence in her gods and goddesses. And furthermore, by the time we come to the third plague, when the magicians of Egypt attempt to reproduce Moses' miracles, they can't do it. And after that, the best prophets of Egypt prove themselves unable to do what Moses can do. And with that comes a remarkable statement when you think about it. In Exodus 8, 19, we read, Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. I say that's remarkable because they don't name one of the gods. They say God. They don't say this is Ra, the sun god, or Horus, or identify one of their deities. They don't even say, oh, this is the work of the Hebrew god, as if simply to add that god to already their long list of gods and goddesses that they know. Instead, they say, this is the finger of God. And that's completely in line with what's typical of polytheistic religions. Even while they hold to the belief in many gods and goddesses who rule portions of nature, it's it's completely in line with their belief system to hold to one supreme creator who's greater than all. So it seems to me as I read the Exodus account that this is exactly what the magicians are saying. They identify for Pharaoh that the cause of the plagues is the entrance of the great creator into their world, and that's why they're terrified. What are their gods and goddesses next to the great creator? And so it should be easy to see how it came to be that many of the Israelites, I mean, even after they had been introduced to God at Sinai, still feel there there are a number of gods and goddesses that need to be appeased. I mean, after all, they came from Egypt. And in Egyptian theology, the great creator doesn't show up that often. But the many other gods and goddesses are a part of everyday life. That, That would have been their worldview. So we're again left with a puzzle. How shall we understand the first command? You shall have no other gods in my presence. Now, in order to understand that, have a look at the law that we find in Exodus. If you've been following me through this series on the Ten Commandments, you will know that I've been saying that the Ten Commandments are the centerpiece of the law of God. The rest of the laws are a further expansion of the Ten. So we should find in the law an expansion of the first command. Well, that's exactly what we find. I'm reading Exodus 22, verse 20. 
says, whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. Well, clearly, from that command, we can see that whatever is meant by before me, that is, you shall have no other gods before me or in my presence, well, that surely includes any and every act of worship. It's not just that you weren't allowed to bring an idol into the tabernacle. It is that any and every act of worship must be directed to Yahweh alone. Now go forward to Exodus 23, verse 13. There we read, Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Now, that means that not only was Israel prevented from sacrificing or worshiping other deities, they were actually forbidden from speaking of them. That's to say, the talk of other gods, what they did and what they were capable of and how they were to be worshiped and what attributes they are said to have had, that's not a conversation that God allows among his people. Now, I know that some of us might have a question about that. Does that mean it's wrong for us today to study the ancient gods that surrounded Israel? Well, no, it's not. But God gives the command to Israel so that they would not become enamored by these other gods. He doesn't allow that kind of a fascination. Well, still there are other commands. Listen to Exodus 23, verses 23 to 24. When an angel goes before you, and brings you to the Amorites, the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. That's to say, there shall not be one vestige of any other God than the Lord Yahweh himself, the God of Israel, to be found anywhere within any of your borders. Israel was reserved for God alone. No other houses of worship permitted. So whatever is meant by having no other gods before him, it clearly means that before him meant the entire land of Israel. God allows no other gods among his people at any time. This past month was Back to the Bible Canada's International Ministry Month. So on behalf of everyone at Back to the Bible Canada and our international partners, we want to express our appreciation for the gracious gifts that were given to sustain and grow the impact upon these global Bible teaching efforts. The international ministry programming and resources are sent to our partners every month, ensuring a consistent flow of excellence in trustworthy Bible teaching. So please continue to pray and continue to consider how you might support these international initiatives. So call today for more information on international monthly partnership or to offer your gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. I've been making the point that when Israel heard the first of the Ten Commandments, it meant that they were allowed no access to any other God. The Lord was their exclusive God. As Moses reminded them at the end of his life, and I'm reading Deuteronomy 6, 13 to 15, it is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. 
You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you from off the face of the earth. You know, but having commanded these things, and they're all contained in the first command, we're, we're still left with a question. What does God actually say about those other gods and goddesses? Are they to be thought of as real even while they're lesser gods? Or are they merely the figment of the imagination of the worshiper? How is Israel to think about them? Now, clearly, as the Old Testament story progresses, two pictures emerge. One is the picture of what a great many of the Israelites actually believed. Now, it's clear that a large part of Israel's population believed that the gods and goddesses around them were real and that they represented a very real power. And the reason why idolatry became such a problem is that people believed in these gods and believed these gods would either protect them or make them become rich or help them defeat their enemies or allow them all sorts of other privileges. See, many of you are going to remember that that when Solomon married the daughter of Pharaoh, he explicitly violated the first command by building her a place of worship for her gods in Israel. And as we've seen, Solomon then becomes a lawbreaker. It's a very serious thing. According to the law, he should have been put to death for his crime. But what of these gods? I mean, what does the Old Testament say about them? Well, probably the best place to start is in the book of Deuteronomy. You know, sometimes Deuteronomy has been called the second reading of the law. That's because to the most part, Deuteronomy is a sermon. Moses is then an old man, and he's encouraging a new generation to remain faithful to the law. So the book then is making the law and its implications plain to the next generation. So have a look at Deuteronomy 4.35. Here Moses says, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God and there is no other besides him. Now that's about as clear a statement of monotheism as we might find. Then, of course, from Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, which becomes known as the Shema. Now, Shema is simply a Hebrew word for hear or listen. And to this day, faithful Jews still pray the Shema. And so Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Not two, not one among the world of gods, but one, he alone. Now, that theme gets repeated throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Psalm 86 verse 10 says, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Psalm 96 verse 5 says, For all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Isaiah repeats that theme on numerous occasions. Isaiah 44 verse 6 says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. In Isaiah 44 verse 8, Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. And then the rest of the chapter of Isaiah 44 is in in utter mockery of the idols, how people make them from wood, and they burn that part of the wood that they don't use, and they worship that part of the, the wood that they do use. Isaiah says they're falling down and worshiping before a block of wood. What would utter folly? And Isaiah 45 verse 5 says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. The very next verse says that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. See, it's in this context that we find shape to the book of Daniel. 
See, the context of that book is that because of her refusal to worship the only God, God has sent the Babylonians. They've broken down the walls of Jerusalem and they've taken Israel into exile. And Daniel, one of the elite Jewish captives, becomes a major political leader in Babylon. But here's what we learn. Whether it's King Nebuchadnezzar's demand that Daniel's friends worship at the altar of a god on the plains of Dura, or Daniel's enemies deceitfully demanding that he worship King Darius as a god-king, Daniel and his friends refuse. See, it doesn't matter to them if they're in Israel or in Babylon. There is no God but one, and he alone is to be worshipped regardless of the consequences. Therefore, to have no other gods before him means you better not worship or believe in or hope for any other god in any place on the earth. For the earth is the Lord's, and whatever exists in his creation is done before him, and he alone deserves worship. Now then, that's the command. So how do we apply that to our own lives? Well, at the outset, it must mean that you are not free to go and worship the God of another religion. No, you are not free to worship at a temple or a shrine or a sanctuary of any other God. If you're invited, you're not free to go. The law of God prohibits you. And don't you say that you're being a good witness by showing concern for them. The fact is, you should by now see that God's law will not permit you to worship there. Now, second, we need also to apply this command by coming to terms with the fact that that anything that captures our devotion, that is an act of worship. You want to keep the first command? Listen to Psalm 73, verse 25. There we read, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. Now, did you notice the words that constitute worship? Let me ask you, what is it that you desire on earth? All that you must desire is the worship of the one true God. And don't be silly here. Like, I'd like a new car. I desire a new car, so that must be worship. Well, no, it doesn't need to be at all. Look, a desire, when it's worshipful, is that thing that you can't live without. You see, that's what Asaph is saying in Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is a complaint. In the beginning, Asaph says he almost lost his faith when he saw the prosperity and the success of the wicked plagued his thinking. God, how can you let wicked people not only get away with their wickedness, but by all accounts, they're prospering in this world? And then says Asaph, he went into the temple, and there he learned of their final destiny, and he says, I saw they really weren't getting away with anything at all. But in the meantime, between the day of judgment and the present moment, when the wicked seem to be getting away with everything, how does Asaph remain content? Ah, says Asaph, here's my secret. If I look at everything I want, from the wicked getting their comeuppance to hoping that I do okay in the present life, I have found that I have nothing on earth that I desire but you. That is to say, in order to be fulfilled and satisfied, I might have everything taken away from me, but I have you. I have everything I desire. 
In essence, the first command says, there shall be nothing that ultimately satisfies you and gives you joy other than the Lord God. He alone must be the sum total of all your longings and all your wants and your joys. If you find your ultimate joy anywhere else, you are a lawbreaker. You know, you can enjoy this earth, but you better not worship this earth. You can enjoy your husband or your wife, but you better not worship him or her. And I say that because years ago I was on a writing break and I was locked away on one of the Gulf Islands off of British Columbia's coast. And while I was there, I met a man who showed me a beautiful hotel that he had begun to build. It was left to neglect. He said, my wife and I were building this together, but she suddenly died. And after that, I have no purpose or joy in living. Don't you see that man's answer to whom have I in heaven and earth or what do I desire was answered. Whom have I in heaven or on earth? And he said, it's my wife. And then she was taken away and all his false gods were eventually stripped from him and he was in despair. How about you? What are you worshiping? Worship the Lord and serve him only and for all the other things that you have needed in order to satisfy your soul. I urge you, turn from them, repent of them, and throw them at the feet of Jesus. Say to the Lord, change my heart, O God. I would have no other God. I would seek no other joy. I would have no other purpose. I would offer no other adoration. I will worship at your feet alone. My soul shall be satisfied in you. Thanks so much, John. Just a couple of quick questions. One is, what about the God of self? Yeah, the God of self is, uh, you know, (laughs) it's amazing how many people, you know, I believe in myself. And, you know, in today's world, we're constantly being told, believe in yourself. So we are, in effect, I think, constructing a God that we worship. And is it possible for an atheist uh, to be a worshiper? Yeah, I think it's not possible to be human and not to worship. I mean, we all seek to adore, to venerate something. And if that thing that we venerate is not the one true God, there are numerous uh, choices that we have out there outside of the one true God. And so I would say atheists do worship because they have to worship. It's this, this drive within their soul that they simply must fulfill. And they do. They worship all the time. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us next week as Dr. Neufeld continues the series, The Ten Commandments, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Every day we hear from listeners from right across the country, and your words of encouragement mean so much. Sean recently wrote, I often listen to Dr. John's Bible teaching while driving to work. It's given me great insights into God's message to his people. Back to the Bible Canada is indeed an inspiration. Well, we're so grateful for messages just like these, but they only happen because of your partnership in making Bible teaching you can trust available to as many people in as many places in as many ways as possible. One way we want to do that this month is by sending you our very new free combo CD series called Joy in Tough Times. Five messages from Dr. John and five laughing episodes to encourage you and to remind you of where confident joy is really found. 
So just call us today for your free copy of Joy in Tough Times by calling 1-800-663-2425 or by visiting backtothebible.ca.